we had a, Mark uh, led a little leadership summit yesterday, and I'm just going to say this, that we have, you know, and Charlene shared this with me, we have 532 people serving in over 1,000 areas in our church. That's amazing. Now, that's impressive, and some of you sitting there go, well, then you don't need me. <clears throat> no, that's not quite right. I shared yesterday that as every member does its part, the church is built up. This is not, you know, one pastor, a staff, a board, so many, it's, it's everybody integrated into the life of Christ. And we're living in community and we're serving one another. When that starts happening, that's when you have a healthy church. And that's what's happening. And so if you're not involved, listen, we want you to be involved according to how God has designed and wired you. Because we know that you'll be the most effective person. And it's for your sake and it's for our sake. Amen? So I want to just express my deep appreciation for all that you do. We couldn't have this church without you. That's the reality. It's the truth. We're not just saying that. It's not only biblical, it's the living reality that we're experiencing. So thank you. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. And I'm going to preach from a text that is actually found in Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark. And I've been doing a series on Mark. But I, I want to go to Luke's Gospel to tell the story because I want to make the emphasis Luke makes. In light of what we're about to do in the next three days, which is three nights of prayer and fasting. <clears throat> Sometimes people say, I don't want to go to those things because I don't know how to pray. Answer, you'll never learn how if you don't come and start participating. That's how you learn, by doing, okay? So let's turn to Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to have you stand one more time and I'm going to pray. <clears throat> I'm going to ask God to direct <clears throat> my thoughts this morning because I'm all over the place this morning. I have a lot, a lot of stuff in my mind, and I'm in incorporating two different Gospels. So Father, we come before you today with, a, with a, such a thankful heart, a grateful heart of how gracious you are, how good you are, and in spite of the things that are occurring in our world today, you are still in control. In spite of what is happening maybe in our lives right now, you still love us. And you care deeply for us. I pray today that you would open the eyes of our understanding that you would help me to share exactly what the people in this service need to hear. Because every service is different. And I pray, Lord, that you will move supernaturally in our lives. Shaping and changing us into your image. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I can honestly say that I've had unique moments in my life. And God will give all of us unique moments, and there are mountaintop moments. I'm sure for Kevin and Amy, the other day was a mountaintop moment. Enjoy that moment. Hang on to that moment. <clears throat> We're going to talk about why do you need to have mountaintop moments? Jesus developed a mountaintop moment for three of his disciples, and we're going to understand why he does that. You know, one of my mountaintop moments came from a low point in my life. You know, God will do things to encourage you at low points in your life, and you'll have a mountaintop moment. 
number of years ago, I was in Seattle. I was pastoring, starting over again. Do you know, how many know when you've done something for a long time and then you go back to z- square zero again, it's, it's a lot harder the second time around. And I'll tell you why. Because the first time around, you got youthful exuberance. And youthful exuberance takes you a long way. But when you get past youthful exuberance and you lose everything you had and start over again, you don't have youthful exuberance anymore. You just remember what you lost and you know how hard it is to regain it. It's very difficult. And so we were starting over again, pioneering a church. We started with six people here in Red Deer in 1984. And so we were starting with six people again in 1996 in the Seattle area. And you know, after you're used to preaching to hundreds of people and you're preaching to 30 people, it's an adjustment. And you have to make that adjustment. And the things that you, you know, had labored for years to build, now you're starting over with nothing again. You have to labor all over again to do the same thing. And it was a kind of a low point in my life. And Promise Keepers was on the rise at that time. They still are in existence, but not to the degree. They had these major stadium events in the 90s. And they would literally rent, you know, a stadium. And so they rented the kingdom. Some of you don't even know what that is because it imploded a number of years ago and now it's Safeco Field. But it was the football, baseball stadium for the Seattle Seahawks and the Seattle Mariners. So it was a big place in the city of Seattle and 60,000 people could fit in the stadium and promise keepers came in and they sold it out. So now you had 60,000 men come to this event. And, in, and it, it's like a high moment, and everybody's cheering and worshiping God. And, and how many know when you're in a stadium just for a baseball or a football game and you have that many people, it's exciting. Yes. There's excitement, right? Yes. And when the home team scores, everybody's standing, shouting, screaming. And it was that kind of an environment. They had great speakers, great worship, great music. And then, you know, people start worshiping God. And you got 60,000 men. They said, let's just shout our praises to God. And 60,000 men in the kingdom are shouting praises to God. I mean, it's electric, folks. Do you have any idea what heaven's going to be like? Millions upon millions of angels and redeemed souls. And we're going to all be praising Almighty God. It is going to be absolutely beyond anything that we could even think about or even imagine or comprehend in this place today. And so you get a little taste of that with 60,000 men praising God. Well, then they did something very unusual. They said, you know, we have certain people in our gathering today and they are, you know, the people that serve us and that's our pastors and they do this year after year and, you know, they go through a lot of stuff and, you know, we don't, we don't talk about our life or maybe some of the trials or the challenges of being a pastor, but these guys said, we want to honor our pastors. We're going to have them come down to the f- floor here and we want to give them honor. And you know, when you're at a low point in your life and you're questioning after 13 years of ministry, you know, should I still be doing this? And that's where I was at. To go down to the floor and have, you know, close to 60,000 people cheering and honoring you, you just break down. I was weeping. It was such a moving experience. That was a mountaintop experience. That was an affirming moment. That was powerful encouragement. Why? 
Why did God allow that to happen? You know what, at that moment, I don't know where the other pastors were at, I don't know what other season they were in their life, but at that moment, it was one of the lowest moments in my entire life. And God met with me there. I had two of those moments, you know, like that. Very profound moments in ministry where God really encouraged me. Do you know, but when you look at the Christian life, you don't live on a mountain. And wouldn't it be great if we could just have mountaintop experience after mountaintop experience, no valleys in between, and no ordinary days. We're just constantly on a high, you know? And that's, that's kind of a dream scenario. I think that's what heaven is like, but on earth, there's a lot of ordinary days. There's a lot of mundane days, a lot of tedious days. There's a lot of days that look like the other day. And we all live through those times. They're uneventful. You know, Eugene Peterson, who's a great writer, he's even translated the Bible. He's got his own, you know, translation of it called The Message. He talks about, and he entitled this book, you'll love this title. I really want you to rush out and buy it. Here it comes. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Don't you really want to rush out and buy that title? You know? What does that sound like to you? (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like, I've got to do the right thing over a long period of time, and, you know, it may not always be exciting. As a matter of fact, you know, the greatest change that can happen to a person is when they come to meet Jesus as Lord and Savior. There's no greater moment in your life that hasn't occurred to you, I pray, that you will respond to him and his call to you. But listen, C.S. Lewis, he was a very famous uh, scholar, studied in Oxford, wrote a lot of books, a lot of Christian materials, wrote, you know, children's books, science fiction books. He's written a lot. He also corresponded to a lot of people in letters. And they put it together, you know, the writings of C.S. Lewis, his answers to his correspondence. Quite, quite famous author. In one of his letters to a person who had become a believer, Lewis says this. All of our prayers are being answered, and I thank God for it. The only possibly, not necessarily, unfavorable symptom is that you are a trifle too excited. In other words, this person just given their life to Christ, but now they're just like really excited. You go, excuse me, Pastor, what is Lewis saying? Well, he's saying this. It's quite right that you should feel something terrific has happened to you, Accept these sensations with thankfulness as a birthday card from God, but remember that they're only greetings and not the gift. I mean that it's not the sensations that are the real thing. I gotta say this to some of us, because you know, we are human beings, we have emotion. God gave us emotion. But some of us, we live for emotion. We're We're an emotional junkie. I'm serious about this. And you're gonna need to hear this message because when, you, when you're like that, you're equating your emotions with your relationship with God and with people. And that's a danger. And that's why, you know, people go, well, you know, God doesn't care about me. Why? Because you don't feel it? You know, you know we, we question sometimes our commitment to one another because of our emotions. You know, if we, we feel something, then we have emotion. But if, if we don't have emotion, that's a problem. Well, I'm saying you can't make decisions primarily on your emotions. He goes on to say it this way. The real thing is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which cannot usually, perhaps not ever, experienced as a sensation or emotion. The sensations are merely the response of your nervous system. 
Oh, this is a little shocking. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not an emotion. It's your response that's the emotion. So don't depend on them. Otherwise, when they go and you're once more emotionally flat, you will certainly be, and, and will certainly quite soon be, eventually come down from your high, is what he's saying. You might think that the real thing has gone too, but it, it doesn't. It will be there when you cannot feel it. Maybe the most operative when you feel it the least. Don't imagine it's all going to be an exciting adventure from now on. Now, I think walking with God is an adventure, but it's not always exciting. Amen. Sometimes it's mundane. Sometimes it's ordinary. As a matter of fact, I'm going to argue today that it's probably more mundane and more ordinary than you realize. Excitement of whatever sort never lasts. You know, then he uses this beautiful analogy, and you're going to love this. I really liked it. He said, this is the push to start you on your first bicycle ride. How many remember learning how to ride a two-wheeler? I'm not talking a three-wheeler. You know, not a tricycle, the two-wheeler. Now you're a big kid. You're going to learn to ride your bike, right? And, you know, today we have a little sophistication. We have trainer wheels. But, you know, back in the day, they didn't exist. And for most of us, we didn't learn on trailer wheels, trainer wheels. You had somebody grab the back of your seat, grab the handlebar beside you, and run along with you. Anybody relate to what I'm talking about? Okay, I'm trying to make sure I'm talking to the right group. <clears throat> okay, and you're running along, and you, what do you do? You let go. You give them a little push and let go. Now, you're hollering. What are you telling the person? That's exactly right. Pedal! <laughs> because if they don't pedal, what's going to happen? Inertia is going to take over. The bike is going to slow down. And the only race that I ever thought was the most fascinating was in India, where the slowest person on the bike wins. That's a very fascinating race. It's all about what then? Balance. But for most young riders... That's a big problem because we're learning balance. So you push them and you're telling them to pedal because if they stop pedaling, it's down you go, right? Okay, so he's using this as the analogy. He says, now he says, you've got that first push and you'll be left to a lots of, you know, pedaling. And no one need to feel depressed about it either. It will be good for your spiritual leg muscles. So enjoy the push while it lasts but enjoy it as a treat and not as something normal. So what is Lewis telling us? You cannot live on an emotional high every day of your life unless you're a unique personality. Now, there may be some people, I've met some people, they didn't know a bad day when they saw one. You know, they're just the way they are. They're wired. You know, they're, they're the ultimate optimistic personality. And that's fine. That's who they are. But I'm going to just say for most people, if you're thinking that being a Christian is an emotional high or a buzz, you're going to be a little frustrated because God is not in emotion. He's a person. He's living within our lives. And yes, our emotions go up and they go down. And so God understands this. This is how we're wired. Now, what is true for conversion is equally true for prayer. And that's where we're going this morning. You know, Sometimes you're praying, it's exciting. Other times you're praying, it's just ordinary. It's an ordinary thing. You know, I've been praying for a long time. I can honestly say 
I've had some amazing moments in prayer, but generally speaking, it's a very ordinary experience. And I think we have to understand these things. Otherwise, we create you know, a false understanding of what we should expect. And how many know when we have a false understanding of what to expect, we become disappointed? And so a lot of people are disappointed because, you know, they're always striving for something that I'm thinking is not even normal. It's abnormal. And you, and you set yourself up for a lot of disappointment. So, where for most, prayer is generally a last resort. How many of you say, you know, I pray best when I'm in crisis? Yeah. And I wonder why God allows crisis into our life. You know, it kind of mo- gets us motivated. Because, you know, generally in the ordinary, mundane, you know, we can kind of evaluate how we're praying. But you know, when a crisis comes along, that generally motivates some of us to really start praying at a different level. Isn't that kind of true? And so when life hands us something beyond ourselves, we find ourselves crying out to God for his help. And in one sense, we can say that crisis is an aid to prayer because it gets us praying. But to grow in maturity, we must cultivate a life of prayer, for prayer is a pathway to a changed life. And this is what I want you to see in the story about Jesus. You know, Jesus prayed all the time. Now, the Apostle Paul says we need to pray without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean I walk around 24-7 praying. Now, that's not what it's talking about. What I think that text really means is simply this, that we have a life where we have a relationship with God and we have unbroken communion. And what I mean by unbroken communion is that, you know, yeah, I may be, you know, focusing in on paying my taxes or going grocery shopping or changing the baby's diaper or writing my exam or whatever involvement I'm doing, you know, but immediately something happens, it's brought to my mind and I go, God, you know, and then we bring this before God. In other words, we have that, we have that a beautiful relationship where we, the first thought is to go to God. The first thought is to express our concerns to God. The first thought is to thank God for what he's doing. In other words, God is the first movement of our soul in every situation we're in. We're ready to go there. We have no problem with that. We think that way. Instead of, you know, getting upset, getting anxious, getting frustrated, getting angry, all these emotions that we usually do in the normal course of events, when we learn how to pray without ceasing, really what we're saying is it's, it's the default switch inside of our soul. And you know how you know what your default switch is? The moment you hit a crisis, what do you do? That's your default switch. Some of you go, I don't like that, Pastor. I don't like that default switch. But we can ask God to change it. And we can start cultivating this daily life of prayer till eventually prayer and praise and rejoicing and thanksgiving becomes the default switch inside of our soul. So I want to take a look here at Jesus as he's praying. Because, you know, in Luke's gospel, we have a number of events where Jesus is praying. And he's generally praying before the crisis. We're generally praying in the crisis. Jesus, because he's praying before the crisis, when he hits the crisis, he responds differently to crisis. How many here, you would like to have a better response to crisis? Anybody here would like to have a better response to crisis than you currently have? Okay, let's take a look at Jesus. And I want to show you that when we learn how to pray, when we start cultivating this thing called prayer, we are going to become a different person. And that's why as a church we have times of prayer and fasting. We have them coming up, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. You go, well, yeah, but I'm not in crisis. Was that the only time you're gonna pray? 
See, you go, I don't know how to pray. How are you gonna learn? You know, well, I don't know if I have the time. Well, what, what is more important than talking to God? You know, you rearrange your schedule. You say, okay, for three days I'm gonna join other people. I'm gonna learn how to pray and I'm gonna pray in a very normal time in my life because I don't know what tomorrow holds. How many here, you know what's gonna happen in the next six months in your life? Anybody know? I don't think we can say that for certainty we know what's gonna happen. We don't know what's gonna happen in our nation. We don't know what's gonna happen in this province. We don't know what's gonna happen in our personal lives. I think we might be wise to prepare ourselves for what the future holds. And we do that by praying. And it does something inside of our souls. It'll begin to change us. So let's take a look at these insights that come as an experience uh, from you know, Jesus' life. Now this experience is unique. It's called the transfiguration. And it happened here in Matthew 17, Luke chapter 9, and Mark chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, it says something here in verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up into a mountain to pray. Now let's just stop. It says, after eight, about eight days after Jesus said this. Now, both in Luke and in Mark's gospel, we have to look at what just went before this incident. And what went before was Peter's great confession of faith. Peter had a revelation from God's spirit that Jesus was the Messiah. In the, that's the Hebrew word. We're translating it into English, Messiah, Mashiach, Hebrew. Christos, Christ, it's the same word. Christos and Messiah, it's the same word, okay? So you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter, you don't know this except for it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Wonderful, great confession of faith. How many go, that's the most important thing. We have a revelation from God. God reveals to the human heart and mind who he is. Beautiful. Then Jesus now begins to explain what the Messiah is about to do. Oh, this is gonna create a lot of problems because you see, all the Jewish people to that point, even though they had different understandings, some believed there were going to be two messiahs, some believed there's going to be one. You know, they had all different ideas about the Messiah, but I'll tell you one thing they didn't understand. None of the people got it right. They never saw the Messiah as suffering. They saw the Messiah as a victor. They saw him as triumphal. They saw him as overtaking, you know, the world, you know, triumphing over Rome. That's what they saw, a very triumphant picture. And Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying on a cross. Which, by the way, if you're Jewish, it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So this is really going against all of their former understanding. And you can understand Peter's like, you gotta be kidding me. I didn't sign up for this. You know, and so he says, listen, Jesus, you're not gonna have to, this is not the way of it. And Jesus rebukes him. and says, you know, get thee behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men and not the things of God. Wow, do you know, isn't that an amazing statement? You have in mind the things of men and not the things of God. How many times in our life, if Jesus was standing in us, before us in the flesh would have to say to me, Paul, get thee behind me, Satan, because you have the things of men in mind and not the things of God. That's a little startling for all of us. That would shake you up. Wouldn't that affect you a little bit to be rebuked like that? Of course. And not only that, this is really the kicker. Not only did Jesus say he was going to have to suffer and die, he said, listen, if you're going to be my followers, you have to walk the same path. 
Unless you're not willing to take up your cross and deny yourself and come after me, you can't follow me. How many of you, that's a pretty tough pill to swallow. Now these guys are trying to digest this and it was after Jesus had said this that we have the Mount of Transfiguration experience. Let's get the context straight. Why is that important? Because at this moment, they need to be encouraged. Now, I want to point out something else to you. If you have your Bible and you're looking at Luke, and I just read it here in verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up into a mountain to pray. But in Mark chapter 9 and verse 2, he says something just a little different. And let's take a look at that. You know, because all of our critics, after six days... Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So now it says six days in Mark and eight days in Luke. There you go, Pastor. The Bible's contradictory. Well, first of all, you need to understand a couple of things. Anytime you take a 21st century mindset and apply it to a first century world, you're going to run into trouble. Do you know the ancient people? They had no problem rounding out numbers and they had no problem with being exact. We're the ones that are hung up on the scientific, exact nature of things. So don't get hung up on a day or two, number one. Let me give you why Mark probably said six days, okay? And, you're going to, and it's going to make total sense to you. If you turn all the way to Exodus chapter 24 in verse 16, or 15 and 16, you're going to read something very fascinating there. Let me just read it. It says, when Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered it, what's this story about? Moses is going up to get the law. Moses is meeting with Almighty God. It says, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And it says, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. I believe what Mark is doing is alluding to this. Mark is giving us a parallelism. He's giving us a picture of what is really happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. These three men, Peter, James, and John, are going up the mountain. There's a parallelism to Moses going up the mountain. And what happens when Jesus is now changed in front of them and Moses and Elijah show up, what next happens? A cloud descends on them. And when you read the Bible in the book of Exodus, we read that there was a cloud that went before the nation of Israel. And whenever the cloud lifted, the people left. And whenever the cloud came down, the people stayed. And the cloud represented what? The presence of the living God. Now, how many are starting to catch on? You gotta get your minds wrapped around a biblical imagery to really grasp some of the things that are happening in the story here. So these men now are gonna come into the very presence of the living God. Now, I love this. It says here, as, back to Luke chapter 9, verse 29, as he was praying, who was praying? As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Mark had said he was transfigured. You know, this, this text, there's only four times this word is used. Mark and Luke, it's the same time, really, the transfiguration story, he's transfigured. And then we see it, you know, where the Christian, how the Christian gets changed, and I'm going to get there in a minute. And then another point where it talks about how a Christian becomes transfigured or changed as well. 
But as he was praying, it says, Jesus was changed. Now, I got to ask the question, if Jesus has changed while praying, how do you think you and I are changed? We underestimate the reason for prayer. Why God calls us to pray is so that God can do a work of change in our life. How many know it's hard for us to change? Anybody figured that out yet? As a matter of fact, some of us, we've tried to change, we've struggled with change, we know we, we want to be something that maybe we're not, but we're, we're trying to get there, we keep trying, but we keep failing. So how do we change, Pastor? We have to get into God's presence. Because I'm so convinced that when we're in God's presence, we become moldable. There's a softening that happens within our soul. Isn't it interesting that, you know, God was speaking to his people. He says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. We have a tendency to be a little hard. But I notice that when I'm in God's presence, I get a little soft. I notice that when I'm really in God's presence and he's speaking into my life, I'm more apt to forgive people. I'm more apt to be more loving towards others. Isn't that amazing? How many know you've had an encounter with God? You're really experiencing God's love. Isn't it easy to even love people that you don't like? You know? And I don't know if you've ever had these experiences, but you know, in the day, you know, a lot of churches, and you know, I, I don't know, having multiple times is kind of a challenge sometimes, but you know, having a good long altar call, we didn't have to worry about children's ministries and parking lot situations, where people could come over and sit in God's presence and allow the Spirit of God to work on them, where they could really work the issues through in their soul so that they could be changed. And I'm really concerned that we're moving too fast as a culture and we remain unchanged. Even though intellectually we're learning things about God, we're really not in his presence enough to change. And so that's why we have designed these prayer and fasting moments in our church so that we could come together, sit in God's presence together, and allow God to change us. It's about being changed. As Jesus was praying, Luke says, he was changed. I believe that like Jesus, you and I can be changed as we're in his presence. As we're praying, God can change us. You know, this had such a lasting impact on Peter that he wrote the second letter towards the end of his life, and he said this about how prayer brings, how prayer, uh, uh, brings about change. He said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. For he received honor and glory from God the Father. Remember what happened in the Mount of Transfiguration? God came down in the cloud, and what did he say? Even though Moses and Elijah were there, and then they left, and then there was just Jesus, and the cloud came down, and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now these guys had just seen Moses and Elijah. But the father's saying, listen to Jesus. And I think that it's very symbolic, but think about it. Why Moses and Elijah? And how did these guys know it was Moses and Elijah? That's the bigger question. And my answer is simply this. That when you're in heaven, you're going to know things you didn't know on earth. As a matter of fact, I, have a, I wonder sometimes, this is just my little theory, that we're only using part of our brain. Do you know that? And it's a very small part. And can you imagine we get in heaven, God kind of releases the rest of the ability of our brain to operate. And we actually know more than we actually know. But when we get to heaven, we're going to know people we've never met. 
That's going to be awesome. Oh, yeah, there's Paul. How did I know that? I don't know. You know? I mean, we're going to be operating on a different level. Is this... We, we can't operate on this level today, but this is where they were. But as they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were experiencing the glory of God. They were actually being ushered into the very presence of God. They were actually experiencing the reign of God. They were experiencing something they'd never experienced before, and I believe that they had a capacity they never had before. And when they saw Moses and Elijah, they knew exactly who they were. That's my theory. Now, you can have a different theory. Maybe you said, well, Jesus said, hey, Moses, hey, Elijah. You know, if you want to go that route, I can't argue with you, but I like mine better. I think it makes more sense to me. <laughs> I'll stay there. So they're there, and they're talking, and there's Moses and Elijah. So why Moses? Why Elijah? Because Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophetic office. And, you know, it's the law and the prophets. The, the prophets were trying to get the people back to obeying the law. But here's the law and the the prophetic office trying to get the law being reinstated and Jesus is standing there with them and all of a sudden, you know, Peter's looking at this and what does he say? Boy, is this ever great. How many think this would be kind of an awesome experience, especially if you're you know, uh, a Jewish person like Peter and he's just like, wow, just ran into the, two of the greatest people in my entire historical background, Moses and Elijah. I think even we would be impressed. And this is what he says here, uh, you know, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. He's calling him teacher. You know, but who is Jesus? He's more than a teacher. He says, let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, he's making Jesus equal to Moses and Elijah. That sounds pretty good. And then, you know, think about it. He wants to create these booths. It's kind of a take to the Feast of Tabernacles. So he's kind of got a spiritual thing happening here where he wants to, you know, do something good for these guys. But the Bible says he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. This was kind of a terrifying experience. Most otherworldly experiences are kind of terrifying for human beings. You know, I've read the Bible. When angels show up, people are usually a little shaken up. It says, suddenly... Then a voice, no, sorry, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Wow. You know, so all of this, you know, element disappears. I'm reading from Mark. Let me go back to Luke here, chapter 9. You were wondering where I was reading from. It says... Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure. And some translations say exodus. Some say death. They're talking about what's about to happen to Jesus in the future in, uh, at Calvary, at, at, when he's going to be crucified. And it says, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. We've already talked about that. Verse 34, well, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone, and the disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Now what is going on here? Basically, these guys, Peter had declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus said, you got the wrong picture, Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus rebukes Peter, 
you know, we know all of that exchange. And now God the Father says, you know, you guys think you know something? Well, here's Moses and Elijah reinforcing everything Jesus is about to do and say, because Jesus Christ fulfills the law. And what is really powerful? They disappear, those two, Moses and Elijah, and all you have left is Jesus. And I believe that's a picture. It's trying to help us understand something. I think this is a metaphor to help us understand something very profound. You know, we have the law, we have the prophets, but they're all pointing us to Christ. And at the end of the day, we should be left with Jesus. And the Father himself says, listen to him. And listen to what the writer to the Hebrews, because he's writing to Jewish people. He says, "In in the past, God spoke to us through our forefathers, through, you know, the law, the prophets, through angels. He spoke in different ways and in different means. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his what? By his son. You need to hear what Jesus has to say. You need to understand the message of Christ. Is this powerful or what? You know, if somebody wants to bring you back to the Old Testament, bring them up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Because really, Jesus trumps everything. Jesus fulfills everything. We need to hear from Jesus. Now, it's very powerful. Now, Peter's going, hey, listen, we heard this voice. This is my son whom I love. I'm well pleased. And we heard that voice that came from heaven, and we were with him on the sacred mountain. Where was this mountain that they were at? Well, this is the story, the transfiguration. You know, some scholars... You know, if you go to Israel today, they think it's Mount Tabor. And other scholars say, no, it's probably not there because at the time of Christ, there was people living on Mount Tabor. As a matter of fact, some biblical scholars believe this was Mount Hermon. And if you've ever been to Israel, Mount Hermon is one of the most dominant mountains in the entire country. It's on the north end. It's actually close to Caesarea Philippi. Kind of makes sense it probably happened there. And you know, if you go to Israel, Mount Hermon is this big snow-capped mountain in the north and there's not, nobody's living up there. Well, today there's two units. There's the Israeli outpost and, the, and there's a uh, Syrian outpost way up at the top of the mountain when the mountain's divided. That's where the boundaries are. But back in those days, there was nobody there. It made kind of sense. This is a major mountain. And then John, who was also one of the participants of that experience, writes this in his gospel. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. When did John see Jesus' glory? On the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Christ, God, his divinity. He's God. Do you know what happened there? The humanity that was clothing God was all of a sudden, wasn't, you weren't able to see it anymore. You just saw the godness of Jesus. It was a very powerful moment in these guys' lives. Now, some people say, well, that's just, you know, I, I've read things. It's really fascinating. They said, well, that's probably those, somebody who's just hallucinating this stuff. But, you know, most people don't hallucinate the same thing. And three of them are watching this thing. Very powerful incident. As a matter of fact, it shaped their whole thinking. Prayer is actually an avenue for our transformation as well. Jesus prayed and he was changed. We pray and we're changed. We can only be changed. Tell me if this is good theology. We can only be changed when we're in the presence of God. That's how we're changed. 
And listen to what Paul writes. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we who with unveiled faces, all reflecting the Lord's glory, are being what? Transformed. That word could be translated changed. It could be translated transfigured. It's the same Greek word into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what's happening as you and I are looking at Jesus, we are being changed. It's wherever your gaze is. It's whatever your focus is in life. It's whatever where your heart is directed. It's where you're looking. If you have your face toward Jesus and he's reflecting his glory on you, you're gonna be changed. And this is what prayer does. We're in relationship. We're in communion with God. We are being changed as a result of that experience. But let me move on. Well, we could talk about, you know, if you want to know how powerful prayer is, think about it this way. Ian Bounds, who is a classic writer on prayer, says, speaking of Elijah, his life would have been cowardly. There would have been no energy, defiance of evil, no fire from heaven. How many know if Elijah wasn't a man of prayer, we wouldn't have heard that beautiful story on Mount Carmel? That's true. He was a man of prayer. We wouldn't have heard about the rain coming down after uh, three and a half years. It was because he was a man of prayer. And yet James tells us he's a man just like us, a man of like passions. Let me move on to the second point. And it's simply uh, from this experience is that during times of prayer, our commission is reaffirmed. Now, I think Jesus, he knew where he was going. He didn't need this reaffirmation. Why the transfiguration story? And I, I'm, I am... Uh, I just believe that it was for the sake of his disciples. It's so that they could see the glory in Christ. They could see that the, the law and the prophets were supporting what Jesus was about to do. That their understanding of what it meant to be the Messiah was being transformed in that experience. Um, I'm, I'm going to just skip over some things here. I could say a lot more, but I'm going to just jump. We've already talked about this. Uh, okay, yeah, let me go back here because I think this is important. You know, just as the mission of Christ was being restated, not only to encourage Christ, I think it was encouraging him, but to reveal to these disciples that the cross was a necessary process to achieve the glory and crown that awaited Jesus. This is the right process. Do you know, a lot of us, we have an idea, of, you know, we can agree many times on the end result, but we have an argument over how it comes about. Isn't that true? A lot of times in life, isn't that the way it is? We, we're arguing over how we get there. You know, we all agree we're going to heaven, but how we get there is a whole different story. We have all kinds of ideas how God's going to do this. And there's a lot of Christians, they don't want any suffering in their life. You know, you can talk to them. And, you know, if you preach a, 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 a Christianity without the cross and suffering, what do you have? You got a problem. You're not preaching the Bible. You know, a lot of times as, as a minister, what people really want to be told is it's okay to do the things of this world. And how many know, deep down inside, we know that's not true. You know, if we live like the culture, we will die like the culture. And we know that that's true. Because some of us have experienced measures of the culture. We've experienced measures of sin in our life. And we know that it doesn't bring life. We know it brings Decept it's deceptive, it brings bondage, and eventually it brings separation and relationships, and it brings heartache and pain, and we've experienced it. We know the Bible message is true, and therefore we know that the way of the cross is the way to glory, and we don't like it. 
We don't rejoice. Nobody's a masochistic that says, oh, I love suffering. Sign me up. You know? Well, if there are, there's only a few of them. They're not in the majority. Believe me. I, I've met a lot of people, and that's not usually where people are coming from. But we must understand that there's a cross before there comes a crown. Suffering precedes glory. It's through suffering that we learn obedience. As a matter of fact, it says about Jesus that he himself, you know, on, on, during his days on earth, it says, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Yeah, he was heard, but although he was a son, he learned what? Obedience, how? Suffering. Through the things he suffered. And how many know that that's how we learn obedience? You know, if you're a parent and you're training your children, let me point something out to you. You think you're being nice and you don't discipline your kid, you're being a terrible parent. You have to discipline your child. I'm sorry. If you don't discipline them, it's a lack of love. You're not giving them healthy boundaries, they're going to get hurt. You are just delaying the inevitable. They're going to mature, grow up. They're going to be incorrigible. They're going to be nasty. They're going to have other people discipline them. How do they get disciplined? Somebody gets married to this person. They go, I can't take it anymore. I'm out of here. You know, that's one way. You know, they, they break the laws. They get caught. They go to jail. I'm telling you, discipline comes. And we don't do anybody a favor if we're, not, if we're delaying the discipline. And a lot of people, you know, have you ever met some people? It's everybody else's fault. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's because they never matured. They never grew up. They never were disciplined. They don't understand the process. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And I just write down in my notes, if Christ had to learn obedience by that which he suffered, I need to learn obedience by the things I suffer. And I'll tell you, in my own personal journey with God, God had to discipline me. I had to suffer to learn obedience. And I'm older than a lot of you. And the ones that are older than me, all they're going to say is, he's totally right. And you're the ones that are my age, you know it's right. You've had to learn through the school of what? Hard knocks. Thank you very much. You know? And you can read all you want to. And I've read a lot more than most people. And I can tell you something. The greatest lessons are not learned in books. They're learned in experience. You know? You can, you can read a lot. It can save you some trouble, but it's not going to save you all of it. I hate to tell you that, but that's the way it works. But here's what I want to say. Well, I'm running out of time. My goodness. I'm going to stop here in a couple minutes. I like what um, James Edwards says. This was revelation of Christ was to his disciples as a word of reassurance. And I like this. In the depths of their bewilderment, Jesus is with the disciples. The disciples then as now are not expected to go out alone in this hard and joyous thing of discipleship. In other words, this isn't just for those disciples, it's also for us. And this is what he says, the one who calls disciples to follow him, which is Jesus, does not abandon them for glory, but turns from glory to accompany them on the way to Jerusalem and the cross. Do you know there's, a, there's pseudo gospels out there? They're false gospels. How many know that? There's actually false gospels out there. And one of the false gospels tells the story that when Jesus came to the transfiguration experience, he just went to heaven. Okay, that's a false story. What did Jesus do after the transfiguration? He said his face, the Bible says, is flint. He just said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. Now, why did he do that? Well, number one, he needed to die for our sins. But here's the second reason. So that you and I would know 
that it was important for him to leave. Remember in the, in the upper room, what did he say? It's important that I leave, why? So that another comforter would come, why? Because if I lived 2,000 years ago and I was walking with Jesus, that's an awesome thing. How many think that'd be just amazing, walking with Jesus? Whoa, wow. But you know, if he sent me to the next town to go preach and he didn't show up, I mean, he came later, what does that mean? I'm separated from Jesus, okay? Now I'm in trouble. Jesus isn't with me. I'm on my own over here. I'm doing what he's asking me to do, but I'm still by myself, right? Even if I take a few of you guys along, all of us, we're on our own. We got, Jesus is in the other town. But when Jesus, you know, was crucified and went into heaven, what did he do? He sent another comfort. He sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Who is the Holy Spirit? You know, this isn't a force. This is a person, folks. This is Christ in you. This is the person of God inside of us. The third person of the Trinity comes and lives inside of us so that he, you and I have the deep assurance that no matter where we are in life, no matter how good or how bad or how difficult or how challenging or how, how, how uh, the struggles that we may be encountering, he will never leave us nor forsake us because he's in us. And it doesn't matter if I feel it or not. He's there. And when I feel it the least, it's probably the best. Because he's there. You know, what's so, you know what's so amazing about preaching? I can preach and I can say, oh, I felt so good today. I just felt like I was really with it. But you know, the times that I've struggled the most are the ones that have probably helped people the most. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because it's not based on what I feel. It's not based on what you feel. God knows what he's doing. And that's the encouraging part. And so I'm going to stop there. I'm not even going to get to my third point, but that's okay. And we're going to stand this morning, and we're going to, I'm going to let you go, because I have, we have kids in the, in the children's area, and I don't want unhappy little campers. I don't want to have people not teaching in our children's wing because the pastor's too long-winded. I can get you guys another week, Right? But as we close in prayer, I want to just close with, you know, a prayer for you. Maybe you're here today, and you're not a Christian, but you want to be. You want that push in life. Remember that little bicycle analogy? You want to start out with God. You want to connect with God. You want to make changes in your life. You've tried to change, and you know that there's things that need to change, but you're unable to change them. Here's the good news. When you connect with Jesus... He will change you. He will forgive you. He will do this work of what we call grace, God's favor in your life. He will bring the gift of life to you. He will begin an operation in your soul that will bring about change in your life. What a beautiful thing it is. And maybe that's where you're at here today. And I want to give you an opportunity today to respond to Jesus. You say, you know what? I want to serve the one who created the entire world. You know, the world was created by God and for God. And then Colossians, it said, Christ is the one that created the world and it was created by him and for him. And so when we get our, our, when we start connecting to the creator of the world, when we start connecting to the savior of our soul, our lives are never the same again. And maybe that's where you're at today. And with every head bowed, I'm not gonna embarrass anybody, but you wanna receive Christ today. Never have done this before. Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you today that that can happen. That you can receive Christ as your Savior. Anyone here? Okay. God bless you, sir. Anyone else? Okay, let me ask a different question. Because I, this sermon is really designed for Christians. 
in many ways. And what is it designed to do? Well, it's really to talk about my commitment to prayer. It's, it's talking about my commitment to not allow my emotions to define my life. And some of us, that's how we live. We're up and down. We're letting our emotions define us. Christianity at moment, at times is exciting and at times can be very difficult. You need to hear all of this because if you think it's based on emotions, you're gonna think God's far away or he's near. I'm gonna tell you he's always there. You can have that deep assurance. But sometimes we're, we feel down. God gives us a mountaintop experience, but that's only to prepare us for maybe a future challenge. These men were gonna lose Jesus to the cross. They were gonna be in a very difficult place, not too far distant future. They were gonna fall apart. They really did, they really fell apart. And then Jesus came back to life after three days and he had to regroup them because they had fallen apart. Believe me, they had fallen apart. And you know, as a Christian, that can happen to us too. We can be going along really good and all of a sudden a crisis hits and boom, we fall apart. What am I trying to tell us today? I'm trying to help you to be steady eddies. I'm trying to tell you you need to do a long march of obedience in the right direction. I'm trying to tell you today that it doesn't matter if you're up or you're down or what challenges come your way, that God is with you. And yes, there'll be moments in your life and challenging moments when you're at a very low point where God will take you to the mountaintop and just say, I didn't forget about you. Just like you did these three men. I didn't forget about you. Isn't that great? He hasn't forgotten about you in your low points. I've had low points. You can't walk with God for over 40 years and not have a few low points. But it's part of God's way of developing you and training you. And I'm explaining this now from experience, not just from a book. I'm explaining it not just from the book, the Word of God, but I'm explaining it from my own human experience. God will be there for you. And how many here say, you know, Pastor, my prayer life is not what it should be. I am inconsistent, but I want to change that because I want to change. How many, that's you today. That's, God is speaking to you right now. I want to change my prayer life because it is so inconsistent. I want to help you guys to just live a very consistent life. Because if you will learn to be consistent, you will keep growing, folks. Many of you I've seen grow so much, but I want you to grow even more. Amen? I want you to be strong in God. I want it when the crisis hits. You know, if a crisis hits our nation, if a crisis which is brewing right now in our economy, and there may be greater crisis up ahead, I don't know, but I want you as God's children to be strong in the crisis because when the crisis hit, your default switch is automatically prayer. You don't lose it. You don't come unglued. You don't fall apart. You don't despair. You don't give up. You just keep walking with God and he'll take you through. You know, think about generations before us, Great Depression, people walked through that. Great World War I, people walked through that. World War II, people walked through that. I'm telling you right now, with Jesus, you can walk through anything. And I wanna prepare you in your soul to be able to do that. So I'm gonna encourage you the next three nights, come. Yeah, but I'm too busy. Too busy doing what? What's the priority? You know, you want to learn how to pray? I don't know how to do it, Pastor. Just come. We'll show you. You know, 
I'm going to make a little caveat. I have to. I have a course I'm taking on Monday nights. I won't be here Monday night. But I'll be here Tuesday and Wednesday. And I've been here a lot of nights. In the last 17 years, we have fasted and prayed so much. I have been here for the majority of them, believe me. You know, I've done 40 nights of fasting and prayer. I've done 30 nights of fasting and prayer in this church. And we do this every three or four months, three days of fasting and prayer. Why? To keep us sharp. To keep us in tune. To learn how to, you know, I don't have an emergency in my life right now. I could have in the next few weeks, but I don't right now. But you know what? If I'm praying, I'll be able to handle those emergencies far better. Amen? I want that for you. I want that for you. So I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we heard about change today. You were changed while you prayed, Jesus. You were transfigured. The grace and the glory of God came out of our lives. And Lord, you've put stuff inside of us. And trial has a way of bringing it out. But if we're praying, Lord, I believe that we're able to handle those challenges that will come before our steps. We'll We'll respond in the right way will allow your glory to shine through us. It's always beautiful when you see a trial come into a person's life and what you see in their lives is the grace of God. You see the glory of God. You see the goodness of God. You see a person trusting God and trusting Him even at a deeper level in spite of the trial. Lord, help us to be those kind of people. Help us to change. Help us to become more like you because that's your goal for our life is to make us just like you thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.